When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game, but because we are recording this on Sunday afternoon, can't tell you whether Gareth Southgate of Crystal Palace has brought joy to the nation or Gareth Southgate of Aston Villa has let his country down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Kevin Day and he's Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Uh, Kieran, we're taking a two-week break from today and I'm hoping that will be long enough for my victory hangover to pass. Well, I, I hope so. Uh, the, the Baroness has, has managed to get one step ahead of you because yesterday, which will be Saturday here, mm-hmm. uh, she went out to Ginfest, which was an outdoor gin festival. And I had to collect her uh, uh, late evening. And uh, <laughs> it was it, it was a traumatic journey home. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, all, all the doors are locked between uh, where I'm recording and the bedroom where she is still still, still got a, uh, a, a wet towel over her head oh, um, and saying yeah. she's never going to drink again. Yeah, oh, I've been there. I thought for one moment you said gym fest then, but then I realised who we were talking about here. But, um, well, wish <laughs> mate, I wish her well for me. The wet towel... Helps a little bit. <laughs> it's not. Uh, <clears throat> it's questions day, Kieran. Although we do have one news story, but by way of a change, uh, we'll do that at the end. So I'm sorry, Derby fans. You'll just have to wait. Uh, if, it, if 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 it is about Derby, of course, it could of course. it could be it could be about Sheffield Wednesday. It it it's about both of them. But um, so <laughs> they'll both have to wait. Um, and for some reason, we've we thought we'd deliberately leave it to the end to create some suspense over the two week break. I'm sure they'll be delighted with us for that. Um, so our first question, Kieran, comes from Ewan Phipps. Uh, Ewan Phipps is an Aberdeen fan concerned on various fronts, but mainly about the strange transfer movements of Ronald Hernandez. Now, Aberdeen signed him in 2020 for £800,000, which was their second highest transfer fee. Um, and at the same time, the club announced a strategic partnership with Atlanta United in the MLS. Now he's been loaned out to Atlanta with no uh, apparent option to buy and no loan fee, it seems. And it looks like Atlanta loaned Aberdeen the money to acquire Hernandez in the first place with a view to Aberdeen developing him, then later selling him to the MLS club. MLS club, can you shed any light? This does seem a uh, very weird transfer. Uh, Ronald Hernandez uh, was recruited from Norway by, by Aberdeen. Um, and as Ewan said, second highest ever fee. So a lot of intrigue when he arrived. Um, he's uh, he's from Venezuela, I believe. Mm. Um, uh, Venezuela, uh, an absolutely uh, amazing country. I, I went backpacking in Venezuela in the late 80s and uh, I hired a car uh, and got lost. So I stopped outside an official looking building to ask directions as I've been going to you know, pidgin Spanish at night school. Um, and I was just, just sort of, you know, you know mentally you go, he- go, go, go in your head, please, can you tell me to the nearest hotel? And by the time mm. I thought through the words, there was a rifle stuck through the window because apparently I'd, I'd parked outside a, a military hospital and the local insurgents had a habit of bomb, car bombing. So um, I had to do the the dumb Englishman routine, um, you know, point to my England football shirt, which I happened to be wearing at the time. Uh, but it was one of the scariest moments of my life. Uh, but uh, am- amazing country. Anyway, back. You, can I just say, Ken, you never you never cease to amaze me. You know that. Is, was this the same trip to South America where you encountered the otter? 
The giant river otters in, in, in the Manu National Reserve. Yes, it was. Yes, okay. it was. Uh, yeah, I, I decided to do as much of South America uh, as I could. Amazing continent. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommended. Uh, fantastic people. And well, uh, amazing well, river uh, otters, of course. Yeah, fantastic people apart from the ones sticking rifles through your, your <laughs> <Yes>. car window. <laughs> anyway, so uh, anyway. Ronald, could have been Ronald Hernandez's dad, for all we know. We could, could have been, could have been, absolutely. Um, so th- they signed they signed him from uh, Norway on I think it was on the thirty first of January. So Norway had just come out of their winter break, so he arrived not match fit. Played about two or three games, never lasted more than an hour because he wasn't match fit. Um, and then they, they uh, Aberdeen lent, uh, effectively loaned him out to Atalanta. Uh, that didn't work out. He, he wasn't getting gameplay there. Um, and everybody's scratching their head, heads because he's, uh, you know, he, he does look a decent player. But uh, you, you then, of course, had to factor COVID into the, fact, into the equation. Um, I think originally the intention was for his family or wife to come across and, and stay with him. So he was he's in the Granite City, which you know it's it's a pretty pretty bleak place, uh, Aberdeen in winter. Uh, you throw COVID in, so therefore he's effectively locked into a into a single room. Can't see his family, and you know, unsurprising that we're dealing with a a young man, um, mm. and, and I think he genuinely struggled. Um, and, and what what then happened, which was very strange, was that Atlanta. Uh, appear to have loaned uh, Aberdeen a right back to replace Hernandez, who is a right back. So, so that's where we are at present. Trying to get any more of it is, is I understand that he's actually now back at Aberdeen. Um, he's still got three years left on a contract, uh, so that's going to be quite pricey for him. And and you know, the manager doesn't fancy him, uh, but he, he but he did score in, in the Copper America. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, so I've, obviously mm. I've, I've been I've been watching that because it's opportunity to nerd out on football, of course. So that that's all that we know, but it it does seem that the relationship between Aberdeen and Atlanta is strange in the sense that was it the the Atlanta scouts who effectively recommended him to to Aberdeen, and as for the funding, mm. um, again that that seems strange that Atlanta if, if they're lending the money to Aberdeen to buy the player, so. Can't can't dig any more into it because all we've got is public domain information. But uh, it does show that sometimes these entente cordiales between clubs aren't necessarily all that they are cracked up to be. <clears throat> yeah, you who did you signed a strategic partnership with us with Hibs, didn't you? Recently, yes. So yes. this is a similar sort of deal: sharing players, sharing scouting information. Yep, yep, and, and I think uh, I think. Yeah, weirdly, we've just uh, loaned a player to Hearts, right? Oh, which which seems very strange to me. <laughs> yeah, um, but I th- think we've uh, one of one of the uh, one of the Hibs players has has now come down to do a bit of training, and and I think the what I understand is that the, the coaches are sort of having meetings where they're sharing ideas. So it, it's not necessarily going to be a player exchange; it, it is going to be uh, an exchange uh, of uh, of ideas, and, and we've also got a. Uh, a club in Belgium, which is owned by the club owner. So yeah, there's rumours about us signing a player from Japan, but he doesn't qualify to play in England under the GBE rules. So put him into uh, St. Galois or whatever it is uh, in uh, in Belgium with, with a hope that he'll uh, pick up enough points there to then come across to England. Uh, uh, this notion, Kieran, that a club may lend another club money to buy a player that they eventually want, is that... Unusual, unprecedented, happening all the time. It it's uh, it it is strange. Um, it it does call into question to a certain extent. Uh, if if these stories are true and say, yeah, we, we are just sort of uh, operating here on an element of hearsay, is you know, does this constitute third party ownership, yeah. um, which which would be frowned upon? But uh, it's uh, it's it's not common practice, that's for sure. And, and Aberdeen, as as a as a club, are run pretty well financially. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that they would need to have borrowed the money in the first place. Mm. Aberdeen's a great city, by the way, with a really thriving comedy scene. But we talk a lot, Kieran, about the the sensibleness, if you like, for want of a better word, of, of Scottish football finances. And I think the fact that Aberdeen, who are one of the great teams in Scotland that their second highest transfer fee is only £800,000 says volumes about the difference between the way English clubs finance themselves and the way Scottish clubs do, isn't it? 
Yes. I mean, if, if you take a look at the Scottish transfer market, um, I, I I put together a spreadsheet, which will come as a surprise to you, um, and uh, I think Rangers and Celtic between them were responsible for 93% wow. of player signings over the past three seasons. 93%? Yeah. Well, of all of players or just of, of, of financial of, value? Of, of all financial value. Crikey. Good Lord. Um, what you need to do, Kieran, is put some kind of gin-related spreadsheet together. Sort of hype, well, she, hype, she came home. Hype. She came home with a bottle of mango-flavored gin, and I'm going, "You don't like mango?" And she sort of, and she just smiled at me. Yeah, well, see, the trouble is, Kieran, as an experienced drinker myself, there, there reaches an hour in the evening when it doesn't matter whether you like mango or gin. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's holding a bottle of mango-flavored gin in front of you. Um, I, I can't. I can't be doing with gin. It makes me maudlin, Kieran. It brings out. It brings out the romantic Irishman in me. <laughs> I start. I start fighting my inner Cromwell. Um, and Tommaso Grant is a, a regular listener, and he has uh, what I think is a very interesting question, which of course is not to imply that everybody else's questions aren't interesting. They are, of course. But Tommaso Grant says, in the lower leagues, you often have clubs with large followings uh, who have fallen on hard times. With this in mind, how much does the value that a team derives from the championship fluctuate depending on who's in that league with them? So, for example, if Wickham were in the championship at the same time as Leeds, Blackburn, Sunderland, Norwich, Sheffield Wednesday, etc., could they expect to be noticeably better off than if those teams were in the divisions they would normally be in? Um, yes, I think they would. If we take a look at sort of some of the smaller clubs, and, and it's, it's not really possible to assess the impact on Wickham because they were so unfortunate that they were yeah, promoted yeah. Uh, in a COVID year. So the, the impact on attendances. So I, I went back into the records and I think, I think a really useful one is looking at Yeovil Town because they, they reached the championship um, and they had one season in the championship in 2013-14 and their attendances rose by over 50%. And, and the reason for that is that um, these you know, the the away teams yeah, and, the, and there were you know in that time there were so many you know decent sized teams in uh, in the championship you know you had we had Leeds Derby Forest of course lots of Stalwart yeah. Sheffield Wednesday um, I, I remember going there myself and, and, and by the way folks if you are ever going to Yeovil don't use the official car park because it will take <laughs> you two hours to get out of it at the end of the match um, it's it's one exit only. Um, but uh, the the away end at Yeovil, um, uh, the capacity there is two thousand one hundred, and and that was that was full practically every match. Because yeah. also for many clubs, uh, yeah, yeah, what we like as fans, it's a new ground, so yeah. therefore you you seize upon the opportunity uh, to visit there as well. Um, so yes, it does does have an impact, um, and we've seen Wickham, we've seen Yeovil, and of course we've seen Burton Albion uh, that they reached the uh, the uh, the championship as well, and and that had an impact. Um, and it's not just in terms of the benefit for the club in terms of attendances; um, it's it's also on the town as a whole because all of a sudden you've got you know three thousand Villa fans, Derby, especially for Derby, Burton yeah. and Derby. Um, um, and it's really good for the hospitality industry as well. So it, it certainly does make a difference. Um, you will sell more season tickets, but it's the impact on the away fans. Uh, I, I know that our, our good friend Andy Holt was, uh, you know, at one, one stage last season at Carrington were, were in the playoff places. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was, you know, he, he'd done some uh, budgets you know, on, on the difference and it, and it was very significant. Oh, interesting. Uh, Stuart Capel asks, when desperate clubs splurge money on transfers in January, does that mean they tear up their budget and have less cash to spend the following season? Or do clubs leave a contingency for emergency January spending? Uh, A lot will depend upon the owner. Uh, Those clubs which are perhaps fan-owned, those clubs which aim to be self-sufficient, um, they they might bring forward some spending, uh, whereas other clubs who have owners who take the the blank checkbook approach to player recruitment, they'll just allow you to effectively twist on nineteen. Um, and, and sometimes you have to spend money on uh, in January. You might have injuries, you might have players lost of form, or or you might have signed a player um, in the previous summer window who just 
turned out to you know, not get on with the manager uh, or, or or turned out to be that his, uh, his YouTube showreel um, was perhaps a little bit elevating his actual uh, uh, talent. So it's, it's a bit like a household budget. Um, you know, I, I've been... Uh, I started work on Friday at 5.30 in the morning on BBC One talking about the economic impact of England winning the Euros or at least appearing in the Euros. And people were saying, oh, it's a massive boost to the economy. I said, well, it's not because it, people will bring forward spending. So if we spend an absolute fortune on hospitality and barbecues and televisions this weekend, it means for the, the next month or two, people will be saying, well, you know, I've only got so much in in a salary each month. Mm. Um, I've got to make ends meet. Um, And also, if if you spend more on X, you you spend less on Y. So for for those clubs fortunate enough to have sort of a sugar daddy style owner, it's not an issue. But for those clubs that uh, run to a more tight budget, uh, it is to a certain extent robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, it's anything like me the morning after the semi-final win. There's been a massive boost to the paracetamol industry. <laughs> that, that, that January question is a really interesting one for Palace fans, because when Allardyce took over, um, within, we bought four top-quality players who probably kept us up, including Milivojevic and Van Arnholt. We bought four in January, which is amazing because... For two reasons. One, we didn't think we had any money because the club was telling us we didn't have any money and suddenly we found money to buy four top-quality players. And and two, it happened so quickly. Palace normally uh, spin out their transfer dealings and so it, it it set a few alarm bells ringing as to why suddenly we could do this in January. And then, of course, the conspiracy theories start that Allardyce had been lined up a long time beforehand, but it's, it's, it's the only time we've done it, to be perfectly fair. Although we have... Managed to buy a player in the summer, Kieran, before the new season starts, which is amazing for us. Careful, careful. Triggered a release fee, even Kieran, that grown-up thing from the Michael Elise <laughs> from Reading. Um, Phil Chater, who I presume is a Peterborough fan, but Phil Chater says last season it was revealed that the ownership of Peterborough's ground, the Western Homes Stadium, I can't, I still can't get used to calling it. It's London Road, Kevin. It's, it's London, London Road. Road. It's London. It's simple. It's, yes. Um, anyway, the ownership of the stadium transferred from the local council to the club's owners, not the club itself. And it, Phil says, I'm uncomfortable with this, but can it work in the long term? And also, sometimes it's difficult to distinguish the club's owners from the club itself, isn't it, Kieran? It, it is. Um, London Road, um, and, and I've got very fond memories of it because when, when my dad was dying, he, he said he wanted to go to one home. He wasn't a football fan. He wanted to go one home match and one away match with me. Oh. Um, and my mum drove him to Peterborough. Oh. Uh, I was living in Manchester at the time. So there was, there was a poor old guy. He was, you know, he was, he was, he was, you know, he was, he was so, starting to fade away. So it was 1985, 76. And uh, we went to Peterborough. It was one of those matches. It was an FA Cup fourth round match in the middle of winter, snow on the pitch, we drew to all. And I've still got that memory today. And, and when oh, people say, yeah. you know, football grounds and memories, yeah, what, what, is it romantic and nostalgic? Well, it is because yeah. I've, I've got that for the rest of my life. So yeah. I've, I've got hugely fond memories uh, of, of London Road myself. Um, but the ground uh, was sold by the council. So it, the council owned it for 10 years. They, they, they sold it and, and they gave the club a discount for – I think in inverted commas, it's contribution to uh, the local town and economy, which is fantastic. And it's been sold to, ironically, London Road Peterborough Properties Limited, which is is owned by the owners. Um, And and then I sort of did a bit more ferreting around. And the first thing these, these people appeared to have done is that in order for London Road Peterborough Properties Limited to buy the ground, they took out a mortgage with Old Kent Road, Finance Limited, which has its registered office at London Road in Peterborough. So it, it's all it's all very weird. Um, all very monop- it's all very monopoly, Kieran, as well. <laughs> well, that's, yes, I, I got quite excited by that. I, was, yeah. I thought, well, this is this is quite funny because because you know, is this being ironic in terms of a mortgage? Yes. Yeah. You know, so I thought, yeah, I, I quite 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 like that. Um, P- Peterborough have. Uh, Darren McAnthony as as, uh, as as one of the, the management team and, and you know he he is uh, he's always entertaining and, and I think he he really does have an eye for players at, at mm. that club yeah the, their development model is absolutely fantastic and there's a couple of other uh, Canadian investors 
But the aim at Peterborough is to move to a new multi-use stadium in an area called the Embankment. Now, if that happens, and uh, you can understand it from a financial point of view, because London Road, built in the 1930s, is it is it really fit for purpose as a uh, as a, as a stadium which is going to generate money 360 days a year, as opposed to being open 2025? Yeah. So, so you can understand that. But if it is sold, then if it's you know, and let's say that it's sold for property development who then gets the profit. So you know, that that could be an issue, and it could be that the owners are saying, well, any profits, we're going to plough back into the club, and that would be fantastic. But as we've always said before, you know, I, I know from uh, you know, our experiences at, uh, at Brighton, when we used to play at the Goldstone Ground, uh, the, the owners sold the club for £6 million to an unusual property company who immediately sold it for £21 million to somebody else. So you do get a little bit uh, concerned. And also, if we take a look at what happened with uh, West Ham and uh, Upton Park or the bowling ground, however people prefer to to refer to it, um, it was sold by the club uh, for £40 million and then immediately sold for £60 to somebody else. And so part of me says, well, that's a good deal. You know, mm. if, if you if you if you sell it and you don't get a great price for it, and somebody and somebody flips it at a profit, you know, Dion Dublin would be absolutely delighted <laughs> under those circumstances. So so so, why should we criticise the new owners? But um, se- separation of club and ground in terms of ownership um, can make you a little bit uncomfortable. You know, that that is being sort of a, a central theme of the podcast, and, it, and it's things which sort of you know, we've discovered. As as fans from more and more clubs have have highlighted this issue to us um, in the it's 172 episodes of the show. Yeah, um, to explain the Dion Dublin reference to new listeners, because he's become a theme of the show as well. He is the co-host of a show called Homes Under the Hammer, which is about people uh, buying houses and then and selling them for profit. And he's constantly baffled by stairs. Every, <laughs> every time he goes into a house, the fact that there are stairs, it's like he still hasn't quite worked out what this, there's, there's always a staircase. It's always, first thing he runs in, it's like the little girl at the end of its uh, Miracle on 34th Street. He runs into the house and there's stairs. You can get up, you can get up to the first floor. Bless him. Um, uh, next question, Kieran, comes from Sam Barrett. Oh, I hope I pronounced that right, Barrett or Barrett. Uh, it's Brett with no in the middle, basically. But my question, says Sam, is related to gambling sponsorship in football. Pitching In is a company that seems to have been set up by Entain, the gambling group that contains Labrooks and Corals, and it sponsors the Isthmian Southern and Northern Leagues. While it isn't directly linked to gambling, is there ever a point where gambling sponsorship can actually be good for football? Um, I, I think I think there can. I mean, you know, there is uh, a degree of circumspection with regards to the gambling industry at present. And I think it's interesting that we now have this company called Entain, which is Labrooks Coral, and we've got Paddy Power, Betway and Skybet have changed their group name to Flutter. There, mm. there does appear to be a, a desire to uh, soften the the name that you know the, the nature of the names that we associate with the gambling industry can can it be a positive influence yeah, yes it can um but um is it good for football well it could be you know, why why not have uh, and again we've discussed this before and i know when uh, gordon brown called the show um he he was talking about you know the impact of the gambling industry and and you know we discussed um, having a, having a, a football levy because yeah. um, I, I was asked to do some calculations for uh, a parliamentary group as to the impact uh, of of gambling in the economy. If we take the big four um, gambling companies together, their total uh, revenues, total get, total wages, are probably in the region of two hundred and ten to two hundred and twenty billion pounds. And and to give wow. that give that some uh, some sort of context, um, football is is worth around about five and a half. So the gambling industry is about forty times as big wow. as as football. Could some more of that money flow through into football? Well, football is estimated to generate forty percent. 
of all bets. So uh, I, I think you know, the potential for even if it's a you know a, a half a percent um, gambling levy on 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 bets could be really beneficial to the sport. It could be really good for grassroots. The the contribution made by pitching in does actually appear to be one of the more positive ones. Um, because it's it's not brand specific. It, it's, it does appear to be the industry acknowledging uh, responsibilities towards uh, grassroots football. At the same time, you know, responsible gambling is good. There's there's still too much irresponsible behaviour from the gambling industry in the way that it markets itself. Certainly, if you've been on social media. Um, over the course of the the European Championships, the the number of placed adverts is very very high. We've got uh, clearly the, the the impact on uh, t- you know, TV advertising and ITV and so on. So yeah, my view is you, you've got to turn the dial down a bit. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, football and gambling can, can, should coexist because it is part of the game uh, indirectly. Uh, at the same time, I think the gambling industry needs to step up and, and acknowledge its responsibilities in a more responsible way. I should point out that ex-Prime Minister Gordon Brown didn't call the show as such. The only reason he would have called me would have been to get your number, Kieran, to be perfectly honest. It was was you he called. (laughs) Um, Our next question comes from – now, I'm going to have to be careful with this name because it comes from Big Dougie, or it could be Big Doogie. This is an issue for Palace fans because our director of football, Doogie Freeman, doesn't like me calling him Doogie Freeman because he says his name's Dougie, not Doogie, <laughs> which is the reason I keep calling him Doogie Freeman. One of the reasons I keep calling him Doogie Freeman. Um, so Big Dougie, or Doogie, um, says, it was great to hear you touch on Huddersfield in a recent pod, um, which slightly worries me, Kieran, because as you know, we've got a massive backlog of questions. So that could have been a story about Herbert Chapman, um, basically. Uh, but Big Dougie Doogie says, I'm hoping you can provide more detail on the club's finances over the past five years, as it's currently causing consternation among the fan base. And now I, I can verify that as I'm working with a young lad who's a Huddersfield fan, proper mad Huddersfield fan, who basically explaining how in the, in the course of five years, they've had that euphoria of the Premier League for two seasons. And now there's nothing but worry about the money. And he says it's been very difficult for Huddersfield fans to find out any detail of the club's finances. Is that the case, Kieran? Um, well, again, you are reliant upon what's come through officially in terms of the website, company's house, looking at the accounts and so on. And uh, I read it as Big Doogie, which immediately made me think of a Kevin Bridges routine, because that's the type of, that's, the way, that's what he, who he'd normally be talking about. But, but back to Huddersfield. Huddersfield went from being a 10 or 12 million pound club in terms of revenues to a 120 million pound mm. club. So it was clearly a, a major transformation of their finances when they were promoted to the Premier League, and rightly so. Yeah, they, they were a cracking team that season. They were. Um, and um, some of that money went on wages. So so the wages went from £6,000 a week, and, and they, they were uh, – Huddersfield had one of the smaller budgets in uh, in the Championship. So, again, incredible achievement, £6,000 a week to around about 30000 a week when they were in the Premier League. And, again, that was one of the, the smallest budgets – um, as a result of that, in their first year in, in the Premier League, they made quite a bit of money. Mm. In their second year, they made a little bit of money. And now they've been relegated to the, the championship. They've got the benefit of parachute payments. So um, they just about broke even, but they had to sell players in order to break even. So there is a, there, there is a downward slide in terms of their finances. Um, some of the things which which have concerned me is that when you do look at the accounts in depth, um, there used to be loans from directors only. And now we've got loans from directors and loans from financial institutions. And it looks as if the uh, loans from financial institutions appear to be factored. And by that, it effect- effectively, it's they are they are secured upon future parachute payments. Oh. So the club's borrowed money from a bank and the bank says, well, thanks very much for that. Um, we want your next three sets of parachute payments, which, of course, means that there is less money for the club to to spend on players, which is clearly going to be the focus of fans. 
Then when it comes to the director's loans, uh, the uh, Huddersfield were sold uh, a couple of years ago. Um, the, uh, the existing owner wasn't in great health. A new guy has come in. Um, there are £34 million worth of interest-free, which is always good, interest-free, director loans. But um, again, if you go into the back pages of the accounts, um, the club is scheduled to repay between four and seven million pounds of those loans each year between 2022 and 25. And my first reaction is, well, you know, if, if Huddersfield, once the parachute payments have gone, if, if they're going to return to being a you know, 10 to 12 million pound a year club in the championship, and, and that's what we're hoping for you know, in a post-COVID world, um, finding four to seven million pounds each year to, to repay directors is going to be a challenge unless they've got a production line of players that they can mm. sell. But you know, if you're having to sell players to repay loans, that has an impact upon what happens on the pitch. That drives down revenues because the fans get fed up. It increases the, the chances of relegation. And if you if you do get relegated, your your TV money falls further. So um, I, I think they, they're in a challenging position. And it could be that the directors will say, oh, we're in a COVID environment now. We're going to kick back in terms of our loan repayment dates and push them further down the road to give the club further breathing space in terms of, of cash flow management. Um, so yeah, overall, uh, yeah, I, I would be uh, I would be concerned. Would, would, no panic buttons, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, Huddersfield historically has been run uh, pretty well. Um, the, the new owners have put money in, but given a choice between putting money in the form of loans and putting it in the form of shares, I, I always prefer when it's in the form of shares because shares have no obligation to be repaid, and, and that is a critical difference. Can I just check something you said there, Q? You talked about um, securing loans on future parachute payments, which surely they may not happen because if, if that is the case, I might go to NetWest and secure a loan on my possible free sold-out gigs at London Palladium in the next two weeks, um, which won't happen. But if you can secure loans on things that might happen, they, I mean, for the, surely for, for them to get parachute payments, they have to get promoted and relegated again or relegated from the league they're in. Well, no, the, these, are the, these are the parachute payments following relegation from the Premier League in uh, 2019. Oh, the money so they they've through, already had, right. That's right. Future, yeah. So, right. so okay. they, they, they took money out uh, shortly after being relegated and the bank says, well, you've got three years' worth of parachute payments we're having some of that, right? I see. I got you. Okay, I just thought I'd clarify that. Now, when um, when, when have you have you announced dates for your Palladium gigs? Is, um, was, was that was that the podcast show? That's yeah. We, we could we might sell out the Palladium. That's what yeah. I'll tell. That's what I'm going to tell my bank manager tomorrow. We're potentially going to sell out <laughs> London Palladium for six nights. Uh, we've got some big guests coming in. <laughs> We'd have some, some very big guests. <laughs> uh, now, Smudge, if you would kindly get off the script, thank. You uh, move your tail as well because I uh, thank you. Um, why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them with Royal Caribbean? You don't just go to the beach, you visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip, you ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new, you rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. This is a familiar name, uh, Benjamin Toes, but the new listeners, by the way, that's the cat I'm talking to. That's not my wife. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, she, well, she, was, she used to be prone to sitting on scripts. Um, Benjamin Toast. <laughs> that's, I don't know why I said that. It sounded much worse than it, it was. a <laughs> very innocent, innocent comment. Um, Benjamin Toast is a, a familiar name uh, to pod listeners. Uh, and Benjamin's question is, says, Villa's owners aren't short of a few bob. Uh, which I believe is a technical accounting term. Uh, <laughs> can a subsidiary company of theirs simply pump money in by sponsoring the shirts for a silly amount of money if they wanted to increase transfer funds? He said, we bought our own ground, so can we effectively sponsor ourselves? And if yes, is there a point where the closeness of that relationship would make someone with a clipboard turn up, which is a pleasing, a pleasingly <laughs> old-fashioned image, basically? Um. Yes, I mean Be- Benjamin uh, is is right to highlight this issue. Um, th- this comes under sort of the umbrella uh, heading of related party transactions. Um, so, as as far as Villa are concerned, the the two owners, Wes Edens and uh, Naz Sawiris, are ridiculously wealthy. So right. they certainly have uh, large large amounts of bucks. In fact, Wes Edens was, I believe he's part of the consortium that just bought the supermarket chain Morrison's. Ah, okay. Um, so, yeah, not not short of a bob or two. He also owns the Milwaukee Bucks, um, which I believe are some sort of American franchise yeah. operation. Um, if uh, the, the, the rules generally are is that if you own 20% or more, of a business, then you have to disclose any transactions that you have with it. So, so that allowed nerds like me to sort of work out, yeah, try to work out what's going on. Um, and, and we have seen uh, Everton; uh, they they have an agreement yeah. with um, a friend of the club owner, Usmo. Um, uh, I was about to say Asimov, no. um, Alicia Usmanov, yeah. um, who has bought the option for not. He's not actually bought the naming rights. He's bought the <laughs> option yeah. to have naming rights uh, at uh, at the new stadium for thirty five million pounds, and, and that uh, that coincidentally uh, came at a year when <laughs> Everton's financial fair compliance was was looking quite challenging. Um, and also, uh, I think he's he's helping to. Uh, He's giving naming rights for the training ground and so on. So those deals can be done. um, But what the football authorities are now doing, and and we saw this to a certain extent with uh, UEFA and their their, their charges in respect of Manchester City, uh, is that we we invoke what's what's called a fair value clause. So... If, uh, if if somebody comes in and says, I'm going to sponsor Villa's shirts at £100 million a year, and you go, well, hold on, you know, your last deal was £8 million, and you sell 40,000 shirts a year. So, you know, the numbers just don't seem to add up. Mm. Um, so that they will try to say, well, you know, it, we would normally expect a deal for a club of the calibre of, of Villa to uh, be at, at a lower level. But these things are still taking place. So, um, for example, uh, if we take Scunthorpe, uh, Scunthorpe United, um, their naming rights have gone to a, a company which owns a Blackpool nightclub. Sadly, mm. not Frenchies. Um, <laughs> my my former my, my former uh, me, me, memory erasing uh, experience uh, for two million pounds. Yeah, that, that's a lot of money. Yeah, uh, because how how much. Uh, how much exposure are you getting in Scunthorpe to, uh, to to Cool Silk, this this company which uh, is, is involved in the Blackpool nightclub? And again, those are related parties because both both are connected. Um, again, going back to our friend Andy Holt, uh, you know his his company Wham. They sponsor the ground and, and they do front of shirt sponsorship. There, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But what we do see is that the the administrators within football, they will review the level of sponsorship from related parties just to make sure that the numbers involved are reasonable. Ben Andrew has one of those uh, technical, detailed questions that you like so much, Kieran. Uh, and I sometimes struggle to read. Um, uh, ben says, my question is on player contracts when they are coming to the end of their deals. In England, if a player has six months left on his deal, he's allowed to start talking to other clubs 
outside of England in January for a possible that's a cross between possible and potential <laughs> I should have decided which one I was going to say before I started saying it for a potential summer Bosman what happens if he agrees a deal to another team in the EU but then his original employer triggers an automatic one year extension clause does the player or potential new club have any grounds to contest that well, I think this is a case of who blink first, um, or who blinks first, even. Yeah. Um, if the player signs a pre-contract in February and the football club has not yet chosen to uh, take up the option, it's too late. Uh, you know, the, the football club could have taken up the option, for example, in October or November, but it chose not to. So what will happen is it will be a precedence which will be set on a chronological basis. If the if the club takes up the option, then the player cannot talk to other clubs come January. If the club if the player does sign a pre contract in January, then effectively it it makes the option available to the club null and void. Okay, um, Stuart Hatcher is another familiar name. I think guy producer guy seems to be front loading this pod with familiar names in an effort to make sure they come back after our two-week break. Um, but Stuart Hatcher says, I'm not sure if this question has been specifically asked before. Now, um, nor am I, uh, Stuart, but I'm going to give producer Guy the benefit of the doubt here because I'm sure his cold, dead-eyed laser efficiency wouldn't allow a question <laughs> that's not been asked before, especially when we've got about 700 unanswered questions on a stockpile. Um, which will be about a thousand after we've had a two-week break. So it's a very efficient way of going about things. But yeah, you know, he needs to count his money, as we've ascertained. But Stuart Hatcher says, "What is the average price of promotion from each league? Or in other words, how much should I be budgeting for a promotion season? And what does the trend look like?" Right. Uh, in answer to Stuart's question, at present, clubs are paying bonuses to players somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 million pounds a year if they get promoted from the championship to the premier league and uh, i've taken a look at the losses of clubs who have been promoted so by the time you factor in uh, those bonuses and the fact that normally the club itself will have had to have invested in players in terms of the transfer market, the average losses for those clubs uh, who have gone up from the Championship to the Premier League are in the region of £35 to £40 million pounds, uh, in, in the year of promotion, which mm. is a hell of a lot of money, and you're not going to get that back immediately. So it's uh, uh, it's it's a, it's a myth that uh, promotion will solve a, a football club's uh, financial challenges. If we then drop into um, League One, the the losses there are in the region of around about £6 million pounds for, for, for clubs in recent years. Again, pretty substantial, uh, you know, over £100,000 a week. Um, at, at League Two to League One is, is far lower. And, and the reason for that is... The, the broadcast revenues. So um, the, the broadcast revenues increase between uh, League Two and League One is probably in the region of you know five to six hundred thousand pounds. So you know that's that's the benefit to the club. It's it's worth around about six million pounds going from uh, League One to the Championship. And as we know, uh, in getting promoted to the Premier League, we, we're talking potentially you know, 110, 120 million pounds. Um, as for the trend. Um, I, I set up a spreadsheet this morning to, to go through this over the course of the last decade, and, and certainly the, the direction of the trend is, is northwards. Uh, the, the losses for clubs uh, in the year of promotion are uh, increasing, um, as is the, the investment that they've made in players uh, in terms of both wages and transfer fees. Okay, well, our penultimate question before our two-week break comes from Kieran Williams. And Kieran says, for teams like Man City, PSG and Madrid, why don't the owners buy, for want of a better word, a burner club like Paris FC or Berry and use that to buy players like Mbappe and either sell them straight away for next to nothing to the main club or just loan them to the main club? Would this not mean that FFP is saved as their outgoings would be hundreds of millions of pounds lighter? Um, Well, this, this conceptually could work, although... I suspect that the the buying club. So if if we set up, you know, uh, Berry City 
limited. Mm. Um, and they then signed Mbappe and, and loaned him for £1,000 to Manchester City. Then people would say, well, hold on, let's take a look at now at the finances of Berry City Limited. Yeah. This, this, this club is losing hundreds of millions of pounds in the uh, yeah, Manchester Association Division 3. This, this is... This, this is a sham, and, and what we will do is, is the equivalent of uh, uh, the veil of incorporation will be set aside, shall we say, um, and, and we'll look at the, the true substance of the transaction. Having said that, um, we, we do have uh, things such as the City Football Group, and if we take the case of Aaron Moy, Aaron Moy, Australian player playing yeah. for Melbourne City, um, he... He was then signed by Manchester City for what appears to be a free transfer. Um, he was then immediately loaned out to Huddersfield Town, and he was instrumental. He was, he was absolutely fantastic for them in the, in yeah. the season that yeah. they 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 were promoted. Up, yeah. And at the end of that season, uh, Huddersfield Town bought Aaron Moy, so they, they, it was a loan which then became a purchase, and and they bought him for a fee estimated to be in the region of eight to ten million pounds so city picked up a player for nothing never played i don't even think i i've i've been on uh, i've been on google i think i've even struggled to find a picture of aaron moy in a manchester city shirt sure, yeah. um he effectively went from uh, melbourne city to to the etihad never played a game for them they got a loan fee for him in the first season then they got a transfer fee we're talking in millions and of course that contributes towards manchester city's uh, financial fair play. Um, there were broadly similar issues in terms of Frank Lampard as well, where he went to New York and then he turned up at uh, the Etihad and people going, hold on, we thought that New York City had signed him. So um, th- there is the opportunity here and none of this is illegal. We, yeah, we have to stress this you know, in terms of transfers of player registrations, but it, it, it does leave you scratching your head a little bit and it's it's not dissimilar to the the question that was raised by Benjamin Toast uh, mm. earlier on this podcast in terms of uh, you know related party transfers of uh, of sponsorship rights well, can the same apply in terms of players the answer is yes mm. what i would do if i was the owner of uh, berry city i would agree to buy mbappe and then i wouldn't sell him to man city <laughs> <I'd> just, <laughs> just, just so no you're not going uh, and, and, and how would you pay his wages? It's, it's fictional, Kieran. Right. I, haven't, I haven't gone down that line yet. I, you know, I, you know, I can't improvise. I haven't thought that far ahead. Um, we do have a we do have a news story to come, Kieran. But um, our final question for now comes from John, just John, um, and John touches on a subject we we have kind of touched on every now and again, but it's one that I think still intrigues people because John says I can see the benefits for the big sportswear manufacturers like Nike and Adidas of making the kits for big clubs. But Adidas also manufacture kits for teams like Hamilton Academicals and Nike used to supply Southend. What is the thinking behind an association like that for the big manufacturers? Well, from the manufacturer's point of view, ultimately they're looking to sell units. Mm. Uh, and anything which increases the overall volume of of merchandise they they sell is is potentially profitable. A a Hamilton or South End shirt will still retail for yeah, probably in the region of forty to fifty million pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit over overexcited there. Um, and, and the markups in replica shirts, you know, regardless of it's England or Manchester United or Liverpool even dropping down to the likes of Southend and, and Hamilton, the markups on officially licensed merchandise are very, very high. So there is a benefit. And, and what, what tends to happen is that uh, the smaller clubs will be given template shirts. So all that will happen is that you've, you've got the template set up for season 21-22. Uh, you change the colorway, you change the badge, and you change the sponsor name, which is, which is from a from a textiles point of view, is, is a relatively easy thing to do. You don't have to redesign the shirt because it's coming from a template. So you can, you can knock them out very, very cheaply. Mm. Um, you can also do that uh, very, very quickly because if you know they, they're being manufactured normally in, in factories in Asia, and it's it's actually very quick to to actually you know, change change the the, the colorway. Um, and you could do in, in two hours, you can put out, you could probably supply the, the 
whole of Hamilton's expected merchandise levels, and, and you're making a profit on the deal. So, so that's the benefit to the manufacturers. Yeah, if, if you've got if you've got dotted around the world 200 contracts on clubs who are selling two to three thousand shirts a year, yeah. that's that's still 400,000 know, yeah, units point. of merchandise yeah. at a markup of. If a football shirt, even for the smaller clubs, let's say it costs 40, 45 quid, it's it's not costing you more than a, you're knocking them out for less than a tenner. Yeah. yeah and I'm being generous there if I say way, a tenner. Yeah, way less than a tenner. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, there's huge markups. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the club the club gets a fee. The club gets some of the kit itself, of course, to to uh, display the wares, just just as we did with uh, with Manscaped in the days when uh, we were on good good relations with them. The, the glory um, days, yeah, of course. Uh, so, so that that's the benefit to uh, uh, you know to to the manufacturers. You know, lots of small deals are are, are still beneficial. Yeah, I, st- I still claim it's not our fault that Manscaped didn't research our audience well enough. <laughs> <laughs> basically tens of thousands of middle-aged men who have no intention of sculpting their pubes um, speak for yourself uh, well obviously <laughs> don't let don't, i wouldn't let the baroness anywhere near them at the moment with scissors kieran <laughs> no, um, I, I said we had a news story we, it, we actually we've got two news stories because i want to mention something you brought to my attention and that is win or lose uh, this a group of young England players are clearly nice lads, aren't they, Kieran? With a with a social conscience. Yes, uh, since I think around about two thousand and seven, uh, England players have given their their match fees to charities. And uh, credit to Gary Neville, I think he was uh, yeah. was at the forefront of this. It, it's fantastic. The, the match fees aren't aren't huge, um, but in addition to that, uh, should England win? Uh, tonight, and hopefully by the time we, well, by the time we, we, people listen to the show, we'll know one way or the other. Um, the the prize money is in in the region of twenty six, twenty seven million pounds, mm. um, and probably around about a third of that would go to players as bonuses. Mm. And it appears, and this is fantastic, is the England players have said we're so proud you know, of what we you know, they brought the country together. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, on on top of giving our match fees, um, we're going to give the the prize money from from the tournament to NHS charities, mm. and you go well. I mean, I've, I've I've fallen in love with this group of lads yeah. over the past three or four weeks, and I love them even more. And this is just this is fantastic. And yeah, people will say, well, they're they're wealthy enough already. Yes, they are, but they didn't. They they've made a conscious decision to do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of other wealthy people in, in the country who have made a lot of money over the course of the last eighteen months who have not been giving it to NHS charities. Yeah. In fact, they've probably been doing exactly the opposite. Yeah, well said, Kieran. Here, here, and when you say hopefully by the time this pod goes out, we'll know the result. We will definitely know the result <laughs> yes. by the time this pod goes <laughs> unless people are starting again and listening to every single episode, and then you never know. Um, so, Kieran, the news story that we so cruelly uh, teased Derby and Sheffield Wednesday fans with. Yes, um, yeah, it's. I think it's common knowledge. I, I have been critical of yeah. some of the football authorities in terms of lack of transparency uh, and governance-related issues. Well, here, you know, hat doffed to the EFL. Um, they are. They've now set up on their website uh, a governance section, and what they are doing is, first of all they are listing all of the clubs who are under an embargo. So you can now go to the EFL website and find that out. By all accounts, this came as a surprise to some of the clubs themselves, but you know, they knew, the clubs knew they were under embargo. They, they just didn't know it was being broadcast. Yeah. Um, so this this is a step forwards, and I think it's uh, it's it's appropriate. Um, you know, we we are the biggest investors in the game as fans. We, we invest our lives in, in in the teams that we love. So so now the facts are out there, and and the clubs can't weasel out of it. Um, but uh, on Friday they set up another page uh, for uh, judgments, and it now appears that uh, Sheffield Wednesday are have a suspended six points deduction. And Derby County have a suspended three points deduction 
on the back of failure to pay wages on time over the course of the last, uh, I think, 12 to 18 months. Um, so if uh, if the clubs are late with wages, uh, and, and I think... Uh, I believe that Sheffield Wednesday's uh, deduction will be halved if, uh, if if they get to the start of 2022 um, and do pay the wages. Um, then um, then these these uh, these sanctions will automatically crystallise. So so there's there's no flim flam. There's there's no weaseling out. The clubs mm. know exactly where they are. We did mention uh, the other day that Sheffield Wednesday had. Uh, paid the the uh, the shortfall of wages to players, and uh, uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll this time I will tell you after the, the show who yeah. who's actually paid those wages. Um, but uh, fans will know as well. So you know the, the clubs can't wriggle out and say, "Well, we, we didn't think it was going to happen to us." So so the the EFL has been upfront. Uh, the, the, the fans know where they stand. The clubs know where they stand. Uh, in an ideal world. We don't want to see any points deductions. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely opposed to what's happening in the boardroom impacting upon ultimately what you know in points on the pitch. But uh, we are we are at that particular point. You, you caused quite a, a debate um, stir, whatever you want to say, on social media with the information that Sheffield Wednesday's wages may not have been entirely paid by the owner. And I, I know that you know, legally we're not allowed to disclose who did pay them but is it not incumbent on the club in terms as you say in terms of transparency to let people know how who and why somebody else is involved in paying those wages no it's a private company they're they're, they're entitled to privacy um uh in terms of Sheffield Wednesday, I think it is it is fairly well known that the club has had financial challenges Mm. Um, for for a period of time, uh, in terms of money sloshing around, so you know they they sold the ground to a company called Sheffield Three or Sheffield Four Limited that that didn't actually pay any cash for the ground. It's paying in instalments, uh, and at the same time, the club is uh, is repaying a loan to the owner. So it appears that the the money from Sheffield Three is then used to pay the owner back an instalment of his money and the owner just happens to own Sheffield 3 so we've got this uh, this sort of washing machine yeah, cycle yeah. of of money flowing around perfectly perfectly legal yeah. uh, thank you to everyone who has supported the pod by becoming a patreon including Michael Morton Ben Harrison and Tim Evely or as I know him Big Tim or lovely Tim Palace fan uh, if you'd like to join them by making a small monthly contribution to our always free-to-air podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash price of football. And we will be back on Monday, the 26th of July, with a questions pod. And if you have any questions for us for that, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. Because, Kieran, we're taking our first break since October 2019. We will miss you. Uh, if you if you miss us, producer guy suggests for reasons that I can only assume are financial, that you can listen to the 170 episodes that are still available <laughs> <laughs> that we've made. I'm not entirely sure you'd have time to because I'm, I'm not sure even you, Kieran, would suggest to the Baron. I'm sorry, darling. I've just got to listen to every single pod we've ever done <laughs> for the next two weeks. Um, but we hope you have a good summer. Um, if you're an England fan, we hope it's a, a happy celebratory one and. If you're an Italian fan, well, we hope you have a happy celebratory one too. We're all about the inclusion on this pod. We're football fans together. And I shall hand you over for the... I'm getting quite emotional, Kieran. We're only going away for two weeks. <laughs> for the, for, um, please come back. Please come back, everybody, in two weeks. I'll hand you over to Kieran for his customary farewell. Well, thanks again, folks, for all the all the feedback. Uh, we 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 do we do take notice. We we're always trying to improve the show as best we can. If you can press follow on that uh, that big Apple icon or or Spotify or whoever uh, you use, uh, it, it, it makes a difference to commuter guy to commuter producer guy. Um, <laughs> where that came he from. doesn't he doesn't commute. He wouldn't know what a commuter was. There's no <laughs> that's, gold. That's, that's what his butler does. Yeah, of course, his butler gets on the gold tram that stops. At the special gold. <laughs> he lives in Manchester, everybody. That's why why this tram reference. He doesn't live in the past. 
it, it makes a difference in terms of uh, where we are in, 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 in the ratings, in the tables. And uh, yeah, we, we do try to uh, pitch in to get guests. And, and one of the first things that they do, especially if they've not heard of the show, they, they look to see where we are. Um, and, and apart from that, uh, have a, a good break. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching in New York and Hong Kong for the next two weeks, but uh, uh, I, I, I have been told by a producer guy, if there's a big story breaking, would we would 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 the team get back together again for a special emergency podcast? And of course, if if the bat if the, if the bat uh, bat cave is 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 needed, it will be there. Yeah, and if push comes to shove, me and the Baroness will do a pod. That'd be that'd be, your your ears would be burning then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ma- mango flavored podcast <laughs> from landscape to mango. Eh? <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> I'm for the